0: Never give up because it's too hard. Give up because you think this is the wrong use of your time. That's when it's time to throw in the diet. When you're like, I could do something smarter or better right now, move on to something else. Never give up because it's hard, because everything's hard. Life is hard, that's part of it. So, you know, really what I've learned out of all of this is like, that is probably the crux of it, is you just, to be successful, you gotta go for it. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our
1: guest is famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Hawk Talk, the 100th episode. This voice sounds unfamiliar, and that's because it is not the voice of Eric Huberman. But fear not, our guest today is Eric Huberman. My name is Tony Del Mercado. I am the co-founder of Hawk Media, and I am graced with the presence of my business partner, CEO, founder, and the man behind the myth, Eric Huberman. How are you doing today, brother? I'm good, man. Excited for this. I'm excited too. Let's get right into it, as is the spirit of the form. I assume when you were born, you came out of the womb and showed up in the doctor's hands and sat there in the maternity ward and said, Let's get to business. This is how we do it. Is that how the story went? Did you come out of the out of the womb as a as a guy that was ready to Pretty shake trees? Negotiating immediately. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it, I believe that. It, yeah. Obviously not in the very, very beginning, but it did start at an early age where I was trying to, you know, negotiate my way through things, getting timeouts with my parents and all that.
1: There's always two things about when you grow up, right? There's your recollection and then there's what you hear through anecdote and story from your folks. Like how early. Do you recall or have you heard stories about you being that guy? And then how early do you recall individually being that guy?
0: Yeah, I'd say the stories start like two. Like my parents sent me that time out and I came out and said, I'm entitled to one phone call. Like I was always put <laughs> back and like was always had a weird confidence. You know, my dad was an interesting guy and a businessman. And I always like navigating that. So even as a young kid, i had to like navigate like his temperament and like, how to push back with him. And so he was used to being the guy and the boss. So I had to like, you know, kind of stand my own ground. So I that I think a lot of that came from that. And then I also just paid attention and like picked up on movie quotes and things like that from a young age and still do. I got accused by my sister in high school that I'd actually like sit in my room at night and like watch movies over and over again to memorize them. I'm like, no, I just have a memory. But yeah, it just started early. And then, so that I would say like stories two years old, but the real recollection Probably one of the earliest memories is running around my parent my house when I was six and picking up a bunch of my parents' stuff and deciding that they didn't need it anymore. So and then walking door to door and selling their like my dad's golf balls and random things that I had from my parents that I found around the house and just going to door to door with it because my dad instilled this thing at a young age of like the intrinsic value of money where he taught me math that way. So we'd be like on road trips when I was like four, five, six, he'd be like, "I have a quarter, a nickel, and a dime. How much money do I have?" And then, my sister and I would start to compete as she got older, on like, who could answer faster?" And we were always trying to figure out this math. and then he got me to start collecting money for the sake of getting the next dollar bill, so like save for a dollar, then save for five, then save for ten. And so it was again, it was it wasn't about what I could buy at that point. It was just like I liked the idea of building and growing and like leveling up. and my dad instilled that in me really young, and I don't think it was that intentional. I just think it was like, yeah, dude, go get a twenty dollar bill. That's cool, and like but I got so into it. And enthralled with it, that I was trying to find ways to make money so I could get that $50 bill and that $100 bill. And then once I got there, that's when I was a little older and started flicking into the other stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was sort of a known quantity that Eric was a negotiator. I also had the fortune of knowing your dad and obviously getting to build a relationship with him. I think most folks would agree Bernie was a negotiator as well. Undoubtedly, you got some of that from him. And then as you evolve, so you've heard these stories. When you were younger, you started turning literally nickels and dimes and quarters into dollars. And that was a fun game to play. When did you start reaching for more than getting a dollar bill or a $50 bill or, hey, I really want to make money or I have an entrepreneurial ambition? Where'd that come
0: from? Yeah, I don't know if it was entrepreneurial ambition. Like when, like, when, So from four years old, I was gifted a guitar. And then when I was like eight, I decided like the only other Eric I really knew of was Eric Clapton. So I was like, well, that's what Eric's do, they're guitarists. So I told my dad I wanted an electric guitar so I could become a rock star. My dad's response to an eight-year-old was, good, get a fucking job. I was like, again, as an eight-year-old, you don't take that any way other than, okay. So I tried selling lemonade and flowers on the side of the road. I picked flowers out of my mom's garden and took lemonade out of the fridge and didn't understand the cost of goods at that point, but went and sold it. But I was selling flowers for five cents and I think lemonade for 10 cents or something ridiculously cheap. And at the end of a week, I had like 14 bucks and I needed to make 150. And I was like, this is just unachievable. Like I can't do it this way. And that's right as the Beanie Baby craze started. So I started seeing people get crazy about Beanie Babies and I started learning how to buy and sell one through, uh, I think at that point it was the, it was like in the newspaper or something. And like I'd meet up, like I'd get my mom to drive me to town to sell a Beanie Baby that I bought for five bucks to sell it for a hundred bucks. And over the course of a few months, I ended up making like $4,000 as an eight-year-old. And I went and bought right. a guitar and then I bought a BMX and put money into a savings account to later save for a car. But that was like, I remember the first big beanie baby I sold. I went to a trade show in Ventura about a half hour from my house. And I had this unraveling like beanie baby I used as a hacky sack. And a woman saw it in my bag and went, I'll give you $450 for that right now. It was literally falling apart. I was like, okay, sold. She bought it. I thought, like I always thought I was pulling a fast one because she didn't know how bad yeah. it was in. And I called my dad and I was like, Dad. I just sold a beanie baby for $450. And my dad starts laughing, he goes, all a sudden the Brinks truck. Like I didn't know yeah. what he's talking about, but I thought, you know, he thought it was hilarious. But yeah, I put it away. And then uh, that was really the first business side of things, but it didn't quick as like I liked business. Like that was like fun to make a bunch of money, but it was so I could go play guitar. And
1: so I went back to playing music, but it was around 12. 12- I'm gonna pause you there, right? So okay, so let's go back a couple steps. One, you wanted to buy a guitar. You sold some stuff. You bought the guitar. Do you remember which guitar it was? I'm oh, yeah. curious about that. Black
0: and white Fender Squire, the whole like starter kit, you know, because that's yeah. what Point was a Fender Strat, but I didn't know the difference and didn't care.
1: And so I bought the Squire. I wish I kept sure. it. I sold it a
0: few years later, but I was like, that would have been a fun thing to
1: still have. But that's great. The OG Beanie Baby that you sold that was tattered for 450 bucks, that's probably worth 30 grand now or something like, do you remember oh, which one it was?
0: Beanie Baby. Yeah, it was a Stegosaurus. I think it's called Steg.
1: But it was worth $1,100. I'd $1, already jumped the chart.
0: Yeah, at that point, it was $1,100 if it was in mint condition. They paid me $450. Oh, got it. $1. Yeah, no, I think it's
1: worth nothing now. Yeah, well, that's how these things go. And then you mentioned this is in Ventura. I know that you grew up in Ohio, but tell folks that aren't familiar with what that part of the world looked like. Where'd you grow up? So
0: I was born here in LA. Uh, I was born at Cedars Sinai and born in West LA. And then my parents, when I was two, moved to Santa Monica. And then when I was six, my dad got a contract to open a waste facility in Oxnard, which is about an hour north of LA. And near it was a small town called Ojai. And my mom fell in love with this really alternative hippie school called Oak Grove, founded by an Indian philosopher named Jedhu Krishnamurti, and wanted me to go there. And so, and my sister as well. So we moved to Ojai when I was six years old. Towards the end of first grade, I joined, I think it was April of 1993, when I was finishing first grade, finished there and then stayed there through high school.
1: Yeah, so you went to... Small, pretty interesting, I would say, school compared to most public upbringing. Not that it wasn't publicly available, but being in Ojai, not Central Coast, South of Central, not quite SoCal, not quite MidCal, but being in Ojai and then having these entrepreneurial ambitions, selling beanie babies to become Eric Clapton. We got that far in the story and then I interrupted. So, now you like money, you like buying stuff. Maybe you like the game. What happens next? How do you turn into a gunslinging entrepreneur from there?
0: Yeah, so it, it, you no. Know, for a few years, I didn't go back to it. I, that was it. It was like, I wasn't trying to make money. I, around 12, I realized I wasn't that good at playing guitar. All my friends, like I'd been playing for eight years at that point. And a bunch of my friends picked up guitar like that year and were immediately better than me. And I was like, all right, like, maybe I should think about an alternative to this. Maybe I won't be a rock star. And I started, I also watched Behind the Music with Sting with my mom. And Sting was ripped off by his manager for 25 million bucks, I believe, is what it was. And then when they went, said that, even as a 12-year-old, I was like, how does that happen? And she's like, he didn't understand business. I'm like, oh, so to be a rock star, you have to understand business. Got it. And so I started getting more interested in business. And I tried to launch an online music equipment store, like beginning of e-commerce. Like, wait, wait, like I've Maybe like what, what What year? What time? 98, I think. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So all right. I, 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 yeah. Pre dot com bubble, right?
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. And I was twelve, and I uh, I learned from a friend, a guy that's done well for himself too, named Kevin Goddard, that was at my school, that was a year older, and he had a uh, electronics website called Com Future, and he sold electronics like Playstations and random stuff, and he was making great money. Like the guy, I remember in high school when he turned sixteen, he bought himself a brand new BMW on his own. Like, was like he was like he was for a young guy, and yeah. I went. I need it like, and so I, he was always really nice, and still sometimes in touch with him. And so I ca- asked him like, "How do I do this?" And he's like, "Well, neither of our voices have dropped, so you have to pretend to be your own secretary because no one's going <laughs> to believe you're a guy." And I'm like, "Oh, good point." So I, we were both. I forgot his name. I remember his secretary name was Janie Smith. I think I might have just used the same name. And I called all these music companies and called Fender and Ernie Ball and Gibson and all these guys and set up accounts with all of them to be a retailer. And when I went to order though, that's when they asked for your seller's permit. I didn't know what that was. So I looked it up and found out like, oh, you And I built a website called guitarmon.com, M-O-N. And I built the website and I was uh, ready to sell music equipment. I went to my dad and said, Hey dad, I need this thing called the seller's permit so I can sell music equipment online. And my dad's like, yeah, I'm not fucking doing that with you. What are you talking about? That was the end yeah. of my e commerce company.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, dude, I love uh, a quick interjection story for me. So, Brent, who you know, and I, we started a lawn business in the late 90s. And there was Tony with an I, T O N I, that was the secretary. That's, I answered the phone. And then there was Tony, T O N Y. And because we were in a band, we recorded all this background, like shop noise. And so, when Tony, the boss, was on the phone, all the background shop noise that we did with like hammering and Putting <laughs> wrenches and stuff like that. That was that was it. So there was billing Tony, and then there was the actual Tony that was in charge. It was the same exact voice, but same thing. I, I love the uh, the teen cover up of the yeah. fact that we're not professionals, but we're we're trying real hard. So I remember sitting on my parents' couch, like
0: having calls with like Ernie Ball, just like in my head, going, I can't believe I'm talking to these people right now. And they're they're like, it's just another
1: retail shirt. sure. You want to order some stuff? Go ahead. So you built the site. You never sold a thing through it. Never sold right? a thing.
0: Move on, and then in high school, I decided I wanted to be a music manager, and I was going to go to the Berkeley School of Music and be a music manager. And that's where my head was at. And then around what was that? I think it was my senior year. June, yeah, it was senior year because junior year I worked in a health food store, and this was actually pretty pivotal. Had a great GM and had a great owner. I'm still in touch with them sometimes. And that was my junior year high school job. I worked there. I think it was Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Might have been Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. I think it was three days a week and i did cashier i did stocking i worked at that way i worked all over the place and they told me that like within six months you should usually get a raise i started at minimum wage which to be clear at the time i think it was 7.25 an hour so i was working and about six months in i'm training someone at the register and i I didn't even mean this to be like shitty but i was like how much are you making an hour like somewhere somehow it came up naturally like oh yeah i started at 10 bucks an hour and i was like wait i'm making 7.25 and i'm training you like what?" So I went to the GM and asked him about it. And he's like, you know, and he goes into this whole thing. It turns out that my manager, not the GM, had been taking credit for all my work and claiming that I wasn't doing anything. So he's like, yeah, doing this and this and he has to do it all. I'm like, that's literally everything I've been doing. What are you talking about? But I realized in that moment, like, you're not going to believe me over him. So I'm in a rock and hard place. Like, I'm out. So I quit. I was like a very core thing of like, I don't want someone else to decide my future based on politics. Like I got to be careful what kind of job I ever take if I take one again. What age?
1: Remind everybody what you're talking. 16. Like, 16. Yeah. So this is part of the entrepreneurial journey that I've heard on this podcast that is it, it, common. It's like, it's not that people are, you know, and the joke is like out of the womb. Hey, you started a business and everything went right. You might've started something, you realize you can trade time or expertise or products for money. You go do a job, you live your life, and I think the next chapter for you is college. But even then, it wasn't that you were a dyed-in-the-wool entrepreneur. You're learning these things over time, right? Yeah, I I will say
0: though, there were two things that were pretty pivotal. One, having a dad and a grandfather that were entrepreneurs, like I kind of took it for granted that it was definitely a path. Number two, a mutual—the person that introduced us technically—is Ronaldo Brutico came into my eighth grade class because his son was the drummer in my band, and said and took us to a local business once a week. And introduced us to the business owner. So we got to meet a bunch of local entrepreneurs. The person that owned the health food store, Linda.com founder, which at that time was 13 people, the local bank owner. And so these people that like we got to like it just became an option. Like I just was aware that that was a thing. I think a lot of people don't grow up with the idea that that's even an opportunity that it's like nobody does that.
1: That's an important distinction. You're right. Your family obviously has been entrepreneurially successful. You also had access to resources growing up where you did. And I, where I grew up, I had an entrepreneurship class in high school, which I took for granted. And I don't think that's the norm. So even though you didn't necessarily capitalize on that entrepreneurial opportunity when you were 16, there's yeah. plenty of seeds that have been planted and then you go into the next. Thing. When I did have
0: an idea in my head, especially you mentioned it, like really college or I guess senior year, I actually... My dad wasn't in, gotten into real estate. He was in the waste business, but then started investing in real estate. And I showed an interest because I liked math, frankly. And so I spent our school got out half days on Wednesdays. And so I would go at that time with my two best friends and I. I think we did it for like eight weeks or 10 weeks. We'd go work with my dad's how it had a real estate and understand how they were underwriting buildings and how they were looking at investments and learn what a cap rate was and all these things that mm-hmm. most high schoolers never do. And so yeah. that really started to open my eyes. And at that point, I also realized like, I don't really want to be in the music business. It's okay to have a, like, it was a great lesson. It's okay to have a passion that's a hobby. Not all passions have to be your career. And so I just decided to go to business school and went to University of Arizona and really didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I was just like, I'll go learn business. And, you know, I like this whole business world now. And that's really where, when I made that decision, the beginning of my senior year of high school, that's really where I started to like, look more like, oh yeah, it started to connect the dots backwards. Like, look at all these business things I've been doing throughout my life. And even my senior year, I thought about starting another e-commerce company. We we're trying to figure out, but we were trying, this is something I've advised a lot of senior, people.
1: Senior year of high school or senior year of college, for clarity?
0: High school. We high went school. To, I went to about school in India for a month and a half, in my halfway through my senior year with my two best friends. And we spent some of our downtime brainstorming how we could start a business. We had just read Rich Dad Poor Dad. We're like, <laughs> oh, we got to build something. We got to build, we, we can't be in the rat race. We got to build something. And so I remember nice. talking like, all these different e-commerce things, but I've told a lot of other people the same advice, which is I was trying to find a business to run. I wasn't like starting something because there was a need. So I was like, we could do watches in e-commerce, or we, you know, we're just trying to find what's the new e-commerce thing we could do. This was 2004, beginning of 2004, and so didn't end up doing it. Just like, came up with some ideas, but then it was time to go to college. And in college, I really looked at college as a way to learn, and I was like, I'm going to learn. Frankly, social skills. My graduating high school class was 11, and then I went to Arizona with an 8,000-person freshman class. So what did like you go to school grade. for?
1: Did you start with gen eds, or did you start with a major, or what did you start with?
0: I was business management from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't pick marketing because I thought marketing was BS, and it was just drawing pretty pictures and stuff. That was a big part of my college career, which is funny where I ended up. But I used to make fun of my marketing major. friends. Like, what are you doing? Even though management, frankly, meant nothing either. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I love gen ed. I actually liked college. I liked the classes. I liked gen eds. I liked broadening my horizons. I needed the social skills because, you know, as much as I was an extrovert growing up for sure and grew up a performer with the music stuff, I still had no idea like how to ask a girl out. I had three girls in my graduating class and I knew them all for like a decade. Like,
1: Well, so I have the benefit of knowing you as a human for a long time now, like stood up at each other's weddings and like, you know, we've been around. This is your podcast because of the celebratory nature of the 100th episode. I I feel fortunate to be able to have this conversation with you. But you talk about when when you went to college, you're known, I think, internally and externally as like a highly socially fluent, influential, interconnected dude. And that it doesn't sound to me between Ohio with a graduating class of 11 and going to the U of A, which is obviously a big jump. Like... At what point? What point did that happen? Like, did you become like, did you become social in college, or was that after college? I was,
0: or- yeah, I was always extroverted, so it wasn't that I was shy, but I had it was social norms I didn't, wasn't used to. I didn't go to a big school with a bunch of kids, so like, and I mean, my school was an alternative school, It was really hippie and weird and touchy feely, and so <laughs> I knew like my cues were from like movies and TV shows and like kind of what my friends did, but not really, and so. When I went, like, I mean, I remember the first girl, I asked a girl out to dinner, which like as a freshman in college, it's like, I was like, you want to like go get dinner? She's like, I mean, sure. Let's go grab some dinner. <laughs> like, she was like, what? what are you talking?" Like, okay, let's go. Like, I thought I was asking girl out on a date. She was like, you hungry? Like, sure. Like, saying, yeah, kind of thing. Like, And you start like, and I had to like strike out a lot, both on the dating side and just in general, say some weird shit. And some people judge me for it. And some people are like, hey, this kid's funny. Uh, I'm still friends with one of the first guys I met freshman year, uh, this guy named Fabian, that I'm still close friends with. He moved out to L.A. a little after I did after school. And I remember like he he laughs about how I was. Even a lot of my closest friends that I was with last week talk about like when they met me freshman, sophomore year and like the difference between then and now. And I think part of it was I had a desire to be social. Like That was an itch I had to scratch because I was so – I craved it my whole childhood but just didn't know where to get it because I was in such a small environment. I got it from video game. frankly. That's one thing I left out. Like high school, I was a competitive video gamer when it wasn't cool and uh, was really active, was really competitive, but was really social online, talking to a bunch of other you nerds. Drop the, the wild wow stats. You can you can flex a little oh, bit. Yeah. I, mean, I was ranked three in Warcraft 3 when I was like in eighth, ninth grade or something. I ran the top clan in World of Warcraft my freshman year of college. Like I was a total video game nerd while well, trying to figure. And so that's where, frankly, I got some of like, how to run a group of people and how to manage a team, like I had eighty people in my clan, and we were literally the number one achieving group. And when that game first came out, so you know you can we'll, it.
1: Yeah, we'll get past college in a second, but I also want to acknowledge, or at least ask, because I've heard this, and I mean this sincerely. I've heard this anecdotally. Your chapter, you were a fraternal guy, right? Yeah. At UOA, and did you start that, or you bolted onto a national org, or how did that work?
0: Yeah, so They were they were. Our house Teak was at Tau Cap Epsilon and it was kicked off our campus years before I got there and they're trying to bring it back. And so they basically put out this, you know, notice that any, anyone interested in joining come out to this like thing and we'll see if you're good for the chapter. And I showed up and it was like, eight of my friends that none of us told each other that we're going all showed up and it was like, of the guys you know now, Eugene, Ahmad, all these guys. And I was like, oh, like I guess we should maybe do this. It's like it's our group of friends starting a fraternity. They also funded the entire first semester of all our parties, all our other stuff. It was a lot of fun. So we we had a good time with that. And then I did step up and I wanted to be in leadership. So I that was something that I think came up early too was like I wanted to control the destiny and not let someone else do it. And so I was our learning head for the first year and then I became the vice president. And this was a good lesson actually I forgot about this. I took vice president which for me turned out to be, I had to do all the work, but I got none of the glory. And I was like, this sucks. I want to be like, I want to be the CEO, not the CEO, right? to say it. But that that is probably where that came from. It was like, I was like, I like, like I'm doing all this work, but I like being the guy. And You've said yeah. that to me more than anyone. And so I uh, learned that lesson, never ended up being president. That was my senior year, I think when I was vice or no,
1: I don't remember. Anyways. Part I- of the reason that I ask is because was that, was that your first experience organizing other people and like aligning them towards a goal or do you think that it happened before or video games for sure
0: and it's as weird as it is 15 16 running groups of people on video games hundreds of people and i can't imagine because i remember i'd play video games with guys in their 30s 40s and i'm yelling with my high-pitched voice like (laughs) but that was definitely part of the experience which again at that time like you didn't tell people you were playing video games you like it wasn't something you talked about. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was a different animal. Okay, so you're University of Arizona. You graduate with a business degree, which means nothing. And then where do you, not to any offense of anybody listening here, but the truth is it's cool. You're, you're done. You got your permission slip to adulthood. Where did you bring your talents to bear?
0: Yeah, I, at that point, like it was like February before I graduated. I was like, shit, I got to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And I went to the job fair. This is 2008. For so a job fair was, do you want to be a manager at Target? PetSmart or join Edward Jones as an entry level wealth manager, and I was like, "This is what I just spent four years in college for." Screw that! <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh yeah, that real estate thing was fun." Like, and that's actually an important. Side note: During the summer in college, I always wanted to go and learn something. I was like, "How do I learn?" Spend the summer learning something. So my first, my freshman year, I actually worked for my dad in his real estate office, and I realized I could never work for my dad again because he wanted me to. You know, the whole anecdote of start at the bottom, which was totally fine, except for him. The bottom was, you can file papers and empty the trash. And that's what you're going to do the entire summer. And I was like, I already was like training people at my last job. Like I'm beyond this, not in the ego way, but like I'm learning nothing. This sucks. I'm not going to do this. The next summer, I was like, everyone that it was successful around me always told me that everything you do, sales is important. You got to learn sales. And so I answered the call. Cutco reached out. Actually, before that, I wanted to go be a used car salesman because everyone had such a bad connotation. Everyone's like, I hate used car salesmen. I'm like, great. I want the hard job. I want the one that everyone hates. And I want to go figure out how to do that. And I tried to get a job as a used car salesman, but I wasn't willing to lie. So I told them all that I was going back to college in three months. And they're like, yes, we're not hiring a three-month used car salesman, which didn't make sense at that point, but it makes sense a lot now. (laughs) And so then I joined Cutco, which basically has a program to take college students and teach them uh, to sell knives and ended up breaking a bunch of their records, doing really well there and learning that I had a knack for sales. And then I signed up To open an office for them the next summer. And right in, it was supposed to open in May. And in April, right before that, this is going into my junior year, or no, sorry, this is ending my, yeah, ending my junior year. I got a call from a friend that had come up with this idea. California had passed a law that they had to filter their storm drains. Every property owner had to. And he had designed a filter and said, this is like, it's $75,000 per storm drain fine if you don't do this. Like, people are going to have to do this. And we're going to create the company that does it for them. I was like, okay. And he's like, I need a sales and marketing guy. You figure it out. So I joined him, made 500 bucks a week. And we started figuring out how to do this. And I ended up getting our first contract, which was a, I took an alarm company contract, rewrote it to be our contract, sent it out. Like it was like, you were in the scrappy way of starting a business, like how to file an LLC. Turns out it's really not that difficult. But all these little things that like carried over because they like broke down the barrier of what starting a business is, like opening a bank account, Getting a contract done, all that, it was like, okay, this is none of this is actually a big deal. And I learned that all at 20 years old.
1: And yeah, really, really important call out. I'll pause you there for a second. Really important call out for anybody listening is like you have this perception that starting a LLC or starting a bank account, and again, it's different today than it was 20 years ago, right? 17 years ago. But like perception, perception is the same. There's tools now that make it easier. But I think yeah, the yeah, yeah. The, but yeah, the impediments, right. though, the mental impediments are still there. So it's, yeah. yeah.
0: And yeah, that was the thing is like, it turns out that filing an LLC is $75 in a little form. Like it's like, yeah. and it's you've totally, got your company and then yeah. you get a, you get a, a number that is called your EIN that you go and give to a bank. And now you got a bank account for your company. Like it's, and you're done. Like it's like, it isn't that hard. And so like, again, we, we figured out, I figured out that like we're, what we were doing was asking people for recurring revenue contracts to filter their storm drains and maintain them. I'm like, well, what other maintenance contracts are out there? Oh, alarm companies. Cool. Let's go copy that. Like that's literally where it came from. And so learning that little bit of scrappiness was helpful. But at the end of the summer, I had the option to s- drop out of school my senior year and stick with it or leave it to my partner. And I was like, just keep it. This is a great work. I wanted to learn. I'm not going to filter storm drains the rest of my life. And he turned it into a multi million dollar business, but then went back, finished going back to February, decide, I want to go into real estate, not with my family, but I want to, I like that business. I like those numbers. I think it's fun. And so commercial I, or residential commercial, because, and this is something my dad got in my head, which was commercially, you never have to worry about what someone thinks of the drapes. Like, it's like, it's numbers, it's location. It's not, Oh, I don't know if I like the door color. Like it's none yeah. of that. Like it's very yeah, straightforward. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, worked the summer to get my real estate license and then joined a firm called Sperry Van one week to the day. I think it was October 8th. 2008. And then October 15th, 2008 was the day Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. Good timing, bud. Good timing. Yeah. So all, that's what it's all about. So I spent <laughs> about six months working in real estate. I grinded. I ended up with like $35 million in listings with commission wise, would have been like a million bucks. And as a 22 year old, and I was like, but nobody was offering anything on anything. No one was buying any buildings. It didn't matter. It wasn't going anywhere. It, the market froze for over a year. And so I started, uh, scrambling. And that's when I got a call from, again, our mutual friend Ronaldo that did that eighth grade class. And he said, Hey, I've been admiring your entrepreneurial spirit from afar and appreciate it. I'd helped his son out with a few things. And he's like, I'm trying to figure out how to help. His son had pursued music. His son was a drummer in my high school band. I was a guitarist. And he's like, he's still pursuing it. There's got to be a way to help these young musicians and these independent artists harness the raw entrepreneurial spirit and focus it so that they can actually make at least a middle class living. Like, all right. And so I went and just went, a well, like I wrote a whole business plan, put it all together. He called me in February of 2009. I gave it to him in April. I was like, here's this whole plan of how I would build this. It was this crazy project. And I built this whole business plan for it. And he went, great. I'll get back to you. And I went back to work in real estate. A year in was August 30. Was it August 31st? Is that right? Yeah. August 31st of 2009, there was a real estate Auction that my firm put on, and they said if I bring the the sellers, they'll bring the buyers. So I brought in all those listings. I got all my sellers to agree to put them up at auction, and no one showed up. And I was like, I'm done. And so I I didn't go. I didn't go back to my office for three months to pick up my stuff. And when I went back, it was like that scene from Boiler Room. Like it was just a bunch of phones on the floor. That the uh, cubicles were all gone. My stuff was in a pile. (laughs) Like it was like it was bad. But uh, I got a call right before that auction from Ronaldo that said, Hey. I raised us a million dollars. You get 5% of the company and minimum wage. Do you want to come do this full time? I'm like, yep, I'll start September 1. And so yep. that was the birth of Fame Wizard. And this could go on for hours, but basically built that for a couple of years, got it humming, And that's when we met. You yep. we were working Ronaldo's nonprofit with, that he Correct. started with Deepak Chopra and some other people and the World Business Academy. And after a couple of years, it was... Evident to me that I didn't think it was ever going to be a massive business. And I was like, this is starting to become a grind. I need to. Do, I remember thinking at 24 years old, this isn't going to send my kids to college. And I don't know why that was in my head, but that was. And so I started looking elsewhere. And that's when one of the board members called and said, maybe it's time to part ways. And I was like, I agree. And you had jumped in with me on it and you took over. And so Tony, for everyone, took over Fame Wizard. And during that period, that's when I started working on the company called Swag of the Month. And basically, I had my dad had tried to start a bunch of clothing companies in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Hit, they all went under. It was his midlife crisis, and had nothing to do with anything new. He blew some money, and he had a He had like, I think it was like five thousand t-shirts sitting in a bunch of boxes, and he's like, "Hey, why don't you go pick those up? You can pay me three bucks a shirt." and whatever you sell them for, you keep the margin. It's like, I need to make money. Sounds great. I went and pick all these up, but you know, spent a few hundred bucks on the U-Haul. It turns out liquidating t-shirts in 2008, nothing's worth three bucks. So I'm, I was immediately underwater to my dad on these shirts. And I'm sitting there staring at them with my neighbor at the time, and in Austin. I'm like, what if I just told people nine bucks, I'll send you a shirt that just fits your style. And we just had like a subscription online. He's like, I know how to make t-shirts. So if you run out of these, we can make more. I'm like, let's do it. Let's build it. I called a friend from college. Eddie Bezalel and said, Can you make me a one page lander that goes to PayPal and has a subscription? He's like, Sure. We put it up. And then I got a piece of advice from a friend at U of A, so can't diminish college too much, that said, Hey, if you want to get into TechCrunch, just tell them you raised money and they'll write about anything. Like, cool. (laughs) He was one of my dad's LLCs, which hadn't done it. And I said, I told Tech, I sent TechCrunch an email saying, Swagger Month launches just raised $100,000 from Burdan Holdings. And within 15 minutes, I got a call from a guy named Josh Constein that ended up being their editor at large and was there till a few years ago. He joined Venture. And uh, we were on the homepage. And so TechCrunch, Thrillist, Maxim, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, I mean, the list was Urban Daddy, all these publications wrote about us, and it just took off. And within a few months, we had a few thousand subscribers. And or a couple months it was and then- okay.
1: Let me pause you there because I got a little inside baseball on this one. The thing that you glossed over really quickly is that that was subscription commerce before subscription commerce right. was the way, right? Yeah. So yeah. you did was- you did two things I think that are really smart: subscription commerce that was not the norm at the time, and then of course obviously leverage your relationships to bolster PR. But aside from an overabundance of inventory at a at a marginal loss. Right. Why subscription commerce? Like, did that come to you in a dream or like did you model somebody else or why'd you do it on a So, there was a
0: sunglass company called Stunner of the Month that I had seen and I think I subscribed to a couple months ago. So, I saw that and I wanted predictable revenue. Like, hawking t shirts one at a time sucked. I tried it. I went to a couple swap meets. It was awful. And so, I was like, I just want to know. Like, and I also really what came down is I just thought it made sense because as a, Oh, a 24-year-old. I was like, I hate shopping. Like, can someone just send me a shirt? Like, I just want cool shirts. I don't want to deal with this. And so I was like, why doesn't anyone have this solved for Pete Men? Like, that it, like, and the internet works this way. This should be easy. So that's how we did it. And then, uh, yeah, we built it. But we got to the point. The biggest lesson with that company was, now I understood why you raise money. Because we got to the point where we had all these subscribers, but we were making enough to, like, make minimum wage pay for our office, couldn't hire anyone. And we were working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, we couldn't take a breath. It just got to the point where we needed more money to either scale marketing so we could get some more revenue or to hire some people, to like whatever it was. And so I I didn't, there wasn't all these podcasts back then. This was, what year was that? I was 2011, yeah, 2011, early 2012. And I was like, there weren't all these places to find out about venture. And so I thought like you pitch a venture capitalist and then you're done. I pitched a guy named Howard Morgan from First Round Capital, legendary guy, sweetheart of a guy. I know him a lot better now. And he basically had just invested in a company called Fab.com, which sold some fashion and he was worried about the overlap so he couldn't do the deal. And so he passed and I thought that was it. I'm like, we, and I was like, we were at the point, I was like, this is not sustainable. We need to raise money, sell it or shut it down. And so when the one VC I knew passed, I was like, all right, well, we got to sell it or shut it down. And I was ready to like, to bow out. And then a friend that asked me to never name them or how much they paid because of some other stuff that was going on. But they called me and asked if I wanted to sell. And I threw out the number that... So keep in mind, I went from failing real estate to minimum wage in music to paying myself minimum wage with Swag of the Month, four years out of college in LA. I was in some debt. And so when they asked me, that person asked me how much I wanted to sell it for, I doubled the number because I own 50% of the company and said, this is how much. And they said, great, come pick up a check.
1: Perfect. So, two things there, right? Like, one, you learned, oh my gosh, so much, right? And you basically covered your loss for that, your uh, opportunity cost for that period of time. Well, maybe not opportunity cost, but you uh, covered the hard cost, right? Yeah. The, yeah, Exactly. The loss. Yeah, and not the opportunity the,
0: cost. This is, this is horrible advice, but I have said this at colleges. Like, I wanted to live my life as a young 20s. Like, I still went to Vegas and partied and I put it sure. on the credit card. Yeah. I had 25 grand in debt. I maxed out my credit card. That's where I was.
1: But Um, what you also did is you stumbled into like you were entrepreneurial. I think the narrative that I'm trying to help folks that are listening to this understand is that like you absolutely had an inclination to go out and get it, go out and build stuff, not be sort of subjugated to the circumstances that you're in. You were opportunistic. You capitalized. You took some L's. That's fantastic. Everybody should take some L's, by the way. If you don't get your ass kicked at least once, you're not doing something right. Right. So then you get this get out of jail card in the form of somebody who, as a benefactor, comes in. And then what? Then what happens?
0: That's what's fascinating is like, I sold my company. It's time to celebrate, right? Except for, (laughs) like, actually broke. I don't have negative anymore, but I'm just at zero. And the same time, actually the story was I went on birthright, the trip to free trip to Israel for all our Jewish people. And I come back, it's a 10-day trip. And my roommates had decided to tell to forge my signature to get us out of our lease a month early. So I thought I had a full month to find a new place and to figure out what I'm doing with my wife. I had three days coming back from <laughs> Israel. And so scrambled, figured it out, but I needed a job. And so in my again, I had no income. I had no idea what I could afford, but I needed a job. And so I ended up, I got quickly connected to the EVP of marketing and e-commerce at Live Nation, the Ticketmaster, excuse me, same company but different part. The head of global business at Warner Music. And I also had met this guy that was a partner at this random incubator that had just started in LA called Science that I met at a bar. And I reached out to all three because all three were had shown interest in working together. I started working through it in three weeks, those were like three of at the time definitely the most stressful weeks of my life. Because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And then all of a sudden, I got, I went from making minimum wage, all three of them offered me six figure salaries at 25 years old. All of a sudden, I, made, I got offered straight 100K a year. Why? Why?
1: Why so did they offer that?
0: Live Nation Ticketmaster, he saw me as just a consummate hustler. I had built this business, I had met him, da da da. And he's like, we need a biz dev guy that can like connect these three departments and, you know, help build business for Ticketmaster. The Warner Music needed a head of e commerce. Who would be better than a guy that built a t-shirt company from scratch yeah. and sold it? And then the incubator offered me-
1: Sold they it, by it the was- way. That's the quick, again, quick thing. I'm going to keep editorializing this because when you say like, I sold a company, we know, honestly, like when we're talking about this with our listeners, it's important. Like This is enough to like cover the ground and not be yeah. <laughs> in debt forever. But the narrative, and this is important for anybody yeah. that's in a marketing capacity, is like the narrative is, I sold a company. Right? Why wouldn't you want some of this juice? Anyway, go on. Yeah, so I got and then Science, the incubator, had launched
0: a bunch of subscription e-commerce companies, including a one that most people end up knowing called Dollar Shave Club, and wanted a marketing advisor to come in and because I was a guy that had built and sold a e-commerce company, subscription e-commerce, so I knew the space. And of course, everyone in my life was like, "Well, you're going to go to Warner Music or Live Nation, right? Like, what is Science? You're going to join some startup? Like, you got to go to the saw." I was like, "Yeah, but and this is sincere. I did Warner Music was in Burbank." Live Nation is in Hollywood and science was in Santa Monica where I still lived. I didn't want to commute. Like that was, I'm 25 years old. That was important. And I was like, they're all paying me the same. I don't really know. Like, yeah, those would be cool companies to work for, but like the science thing seems kind of cool. Like maybe startups are cool. And so I went to science and thank God, cause I'd probably be working corporate today. Like once you get mm-hmm. on that wheel, it's really hard to get off it. So, and thankfully the guy at uh, Ticketmaster actually told me like, Hey, Hey, You're going to have three different bosses here. I don't know if you want this job, man. Like, thank you. And so joined science and quickly ended up working on, they had a vitamin company that was failing miserably. Like I was, they pulled me in to look at it on a marketing perspective. I'm like, there's no saving this. Like, I don't care if we do better ads. Like this isn't going to, this doesn't work from a business model perspective. And they said, well, what if we did your swag of the month thing, but for women's activewear? Like, that's easy. Like, great. Why don't you build it in a week? You have the team, the founders, the two co-founders were going on vacation and gave me the team and said, build it in a week. So I pulled in my partner from Saga of the Month, Austin, and we went and he came in for operations. I did marketing and we built out the site and launched it. And in the first two weeks, we did 80 grand in revenue. And they had raised $2 million in the seed round for the vitamin company. So they had a bunch of cash. And so we it's, it was a rocket ship. I mean, we all of a sudden, you know, month one, I think we did 80 grand in first two weeks. And then the first full month after that, we did like 150, then 300, then 450. It was like just boom. And nice. um yeah, it was great. Got an office, raised more money. I think we raised another six million, if I remember correctly. And then I think it was in January, they are like, hey, we want to vertically integrate and build our own factory and change. It was all selling retail. We were selling Lulu, Lorna Jane, all these exciting brands. And they're like, we want to vertically integrate and make it our own brand. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, we're gonna call it Ellie. We're buying Ellie.com. I think it was for two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And it was like this <laughs> crazy thing. And it, And I'm like, let me call a friend. And I had one of my dad's close friends growing up. They lived across the street from each other was a guy that started Seven Jeans. So I called the guy and said, what does it cost to do this? And he's like, name's Peter Corral. I have to give him credit. He's like, "Uh, yeah, it'll be about $20 million to put that together. I'm like, okay, we have six. So what do we do with that? He's like, oh, okay. So it's really simple. You're going to spend 6 million and then need another 14. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. He's like, yeah. So I go back to the board and I say, guys, I think we're making a big mistake here. Like, I just called one great, really knowledgeable guy that just built an activewear manufacturing facility, asked him what it cost. He said 20. Like, I think we're getting over our skis here. And the response I got from the board was, You're the marketing guy, just market what we tell you to. Like, I'm almost the only guy in this room that's had an exit in e commerce, but okay. So they did it. And the next month they launched and it was received incredibly poorly. And we lost half our revenue and all our cash in a month. And they fired most of the team, had me cut everybody. I stuck it out for a couple months. And then it was like, this sucks. And left. In the meantime, I had just met a guy that owned a giant activewear manufacturer. And he wanted to hire me to come help him build out his digital. And I was like, well, you should just buy this. So I got the company sold to this guy. And he said, well, come work for me. I was like, I'm not going to come work for you. I'm like, I'll work one day a week for you. It's like, no, you'll work three days a week. I'm like, okay, but then you're gonna have to pay me like 200 bucks an hour. He's like, no problem. Okay, what? <laughs> so, just to be <laughs> clear, hundred thousand dollars a year was a huge jump for me. The year be- a year before, that's yeah. fifty bucks an hour. So now I'm forexing my salary and only working <laughs> days a week. and what, like,
1: what was the pain point about full time? Was it geography or was it anything else?
0: No, it was it was actually the lesson again of being reliant on someone else's decision making. I didn't yeah, want to okay. vertically integrate. Ellie should have been a huge business, and it still exists. He still runs it, but um it could have been a no, never mind. Never mind. No, yeah. But no, 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 no. They get the buyer. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. So I ended up going and then all of a sudden I'm working three days a week from, and they were in a East LA and it was hard to get to. So I'd go really early. I think I'd leave at 6am and I would leave their office at like 2pm, something like that. Cause it was also part-time and they gave me my own office. And so I'd go there and work with them and help them build out digital. But I also had tons of free time and I'm 26 at that 26. Yeah. 26 at that point. And so I started like offering myself to consult for other businesses. all of a sudden I realized like, oh, you know, swag of the month had a good story. Ellie was a marketing rocket ship. It just killed itself with uh, bad operational decisions. So all of a sudden I started getting hit up by all these people. And so I started consulting and advising for a bunch of brands while this kind of staple. And my goal was like, I'm still spending three grand a month on my life because that's what I was used to making. So I was like, I didn't raise my expenses when I got the Ellie job. And so I was like, if I can just cover three grand a month, I'm good. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm making a lot more than that. So I'm like, oh. And th- at that time, I was like, maybe I'll start a tea company because I saw fitness and health teas were the thing when I was working in activewear. Mm-hmm. So I started working on that, but I started consulting more and more and it kept going, kept going. And uh, three months in, I hire an assistant to help me execute all this stuff. And all of a sudden, I've got an assistant making that I'm paying minimum wage. And I've bootstrapped this. It's just me. And I'm making like 35 grand a month as a 26-year-old pre-tax but not w-2 so i got to manage my own tax sure. basis. yeah yeah who yeah. don't know is a really nice place to be because you can write off a lot of things and so all of a sudden you know you get through that year and i'm like trying to make this happen trying to get like i'd go in and advise a company and i'd say okay you need facebook ads you need email marketing and you need web and then i go bring in agencies and nine times out of ten those agencies would suck and
1: i'm like this isn't working i need to figure this out I ended up reaching out to 11-12, just to maintain the narrative, 11-12-13, like, where are we? Okay, all right.
0: And so then I, that's when I was like, all right, I got to build a little team here. I called you and said, okay, you've been, and during that time for the audience, Tony helped me build all the furniture for Swag of the Month. We have a picture of it with Ikea. (laughs) Tony also joined me on Ellie for about a month. And then there was an opportunity to really see if I give Fame Wizard one last shot. And at this point, it had been three years, Tony, it was like, I'm going to give it a solid three years. And I called him and said, Hey, why don't we, I think I've got something here. Come over and help me do this thing. And so we ended up hiring, I hired, Tony came over and then I brought on media buyers slash email marketer, et cetera. We hired about six, seven people. And Tony started helping me as I went on vacation over the holidays, but came back January 13th. We really started full-time building Hawk Media. And I launched the tea company at the same time, had a bunch of credit card fraud on it got pissed off, shut the whole thing down. And that was never heard from again. And that was the focus. So that was January 13th, 2014.
1: So, okay. So the inception date of Hawk Media, Jan 13, 2014, you're wearing the hat, living the life. Let's go back three months before that, because you had, from my understanding, not just based on what you said right now, but obviously anecdotally, I know you, the... Your ability to apply your trade as a marketer became more valuable, right? And yeah. how you could ply your trade for multiple businesses and right. especially at that time. Yeah. Why don't Everyone. you yeah, why don't you describe the people? I mean, the, the it's yeah. such a different world. Like we're sitting here at the end of 2023. It's such a different world, but like the end of 2013, literally 10 years ago, right? Yeah. What the marketing ecosystem looked like. And then I think the spirit of this is to understand your entrepreneurial inclinations. So, what did you see in the market 10 years ago that you thought made sense to start a business that it might be different today? Again, some of those same need conditions aren't there, but like we've talked about contractors, we've talked about quality work delivery, we've talked about contracts, all those kinds of things. Like, what was the genesis of Hawk? From your perspective, at that point,
0: yeah, it was a few things. One, is, was again it, the original thought was like I'm just going to do it. it's a means to an end. Like I'm going to consult because I can. I got a few people right in front of me that are willing to pay me, and pricing was fun because like my after the hourly one, my first client, I was like a thousand bucks a month. They're like no problem, like too easy, shit. I left money on the table there. Second client, thousand bucks <laughs> a month. They're like yeah. no problem, like too easy. Damn it. Third client, three thousand bucks a month, and I'm like ah uh, okay. I'm like there's the price, three grand a month.
1: That's right. Yeah,
0: that was on price per service for a long time.
1: Price sensitivity analysis in real time. Good job there.
0: (laughs) And pitching myself, I was like, I run a digital marketing consultancy, and people are like, What? I run a marketing agency. Ugh, all these things. And I'm like, It's like you're outsourced CMO, and everyone's like, Oh, cool. So like, there. That's our tagline, and that's literally how it started. But it was like, it was fun. Like that was the thing. It's like I, I knew I had a talent for it. I knew how to grow businesses. I knew how to sign clients, and I knew how to manage them, and this was a time when like Red Bull called me to try to figure out how to do influencer marketing. And I don't mean they had endorsements, but they didn't do digital influencers. Like uh HP had us help them with their first social media campaign. Like it was like a lot of these companies in 20 even in 2013, 14 had no idea what they were stepping into and I had sold to e-commerce brands from, you know, again, the marketability of it and there was no one like me that was willing to go work with these companies. Like my competitors were affiliate marketers or like I worked at, I worked at Facebook and now I run an agency. That was literally who I ran across. It's like, yeah, you can work with them or do you want to build and sell a company? Cause I know how to do that. And that was a great selling point. And then pretty quickly we did great work and we were able to then tout our own work and our own brand and start growing from there. But it was also a time where it was a, you know, an e-commerce gold rush for the past for up eight years after that, where it went from like just the general market adoption to then COVID where everybody realized oh shit it went from you know pre covid 13% of digi- purchases were done online in the heart of covid it was 30 like the market yeah. went nuts and so there was a ton of tailwind timing was perfect and it was a lot of right place right time and we worked hard at it you know we we this is where we talk about the partnership but like tony joined and originally was just supposed to be like our client strategist to help like manage the overall client performance but like then he realized like Why I've got to be able to manage all these other people because like if the email marketer doesn't do their job, now I'm telling the client why they didn't do their job. That doesn't work. So like I need to be able to manage that person too. So he ended up basically running the day-to-day of the business within a few weeks. And basically it was like, yeah, you just go out and grow the thing. So the combination of like, as Tony puts it, I made promises and he delivered on them was like a big part of like what was allowed us to then capture the opportunity that was in front of us of this giant addressable market that everybody needed what we did. And we made it really easy to work with us and prove that we were the best at what we did over and over again. And so that was, you know, and then we just, I'd say the business ran better during those years when we were reactive, not proactive. I think people get really bought up into their own bullshit of like, here's our projections, here's what we're going to do. And then they start making decisions based on hitting things they are assuming versus like, what happened? Oh, we got to do better there. Let's make this change. And like, That's always been where I've seen the business run better and learned a lot through that. And so started building it, started hiring, started seeing that there was traction here. And we set a goal, Like I think it was like week one of what the first four years would look like. And we came within like 1% of that goal every year for four years. In the end of the first year, we got offered to sell the thing for a decent amount of money and we decided not to. And that's when Tony and I had this conversation of how do we make this a marathon, not a sprint? And make it so it's something that we want to do a long time, because who knows, like, I always assumed when we turned down a sale that it was going to be a decade before the next one because you never know when you're <laughs> on the precipice of the recession. And it's going to be a whole decade before we get back there. And so we turned down the sale. I was like, well, how do we make this sustainable for a decade? And Tony at the time, it was a lot before marriage and kids for us. But Tony wanted to play golf every other Wednesday morning. I wanted to go on an epic trip two or three times a year. And that's what we did. And then it made because it was the conversation of what would we do if we sold? Like why do you travel the world a little bit? It's like well why not do that anyways? And so we built this idea of work life harmony where it can all work together and made it sustainable. And then frankly, we rode a fun wave for eight years. It was into, and looking back, there were tons of times where we were stressed out, losing sleep. We had to do make changes. You know, cut people. Like lost a big line of business, whatever it was. You know, and had high expectations that weren't met. All sorts of things. But it was you know eight years were a fun ride. And then. A couple of years ago was when the economy finally turned on us and everyone for the first time in a long time, 15 years. It was 14 years. And so making those adjustments and those changes and learning from that, that was a stressful fucking year. But once you start to get through that and kind of learn how to manage that, it almost, I don't know, like it feels like you're wearing a bulletproof vest now where you're like, okay, I know how to do that now. So you can't fuck with me again. Like I got this down. I know how to manage through a crisis like this. So that has been a fascinating part too. And you know, continue to build and grow. And through that, a few other fun things happened. One, two years in, I was introduced to AI, and we started developing our own AI system that we launched two months before ChatGPT. And now, turns out, we you know we basically jumped ahead of the bandwagon and look like we're on it. But at the same time, we built this robust AI system that helps us be the best at what we do. And about a year into business, a friend of mine reached out and said, "Hey, we're we're pivoting the e-commerce. We want you to be on our cap table and invest." I was like, guys, I'm not going to invest in startups. Like at the time I had this thought that like, I'm going to take all the money that we make at Hawk and I'm going to put it into real estate and that's, I'm going to build a nest egg. And so I was like, I'm not interested. And they're like, no, 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 we're not asking. We're telling you, you're going to invest. It can be a small check, but you're in. Like, okay, I respect that. So I invested in this company called FabFitFun or we did that became a huge success and opened our eyes up to the idea of investing. And we ended up investing in a few other companies over the course of three years that did well. And then we raised our venture fund. We had our first fund five and a half years ago, I think it was. We raised our first fund and then consecutively raised our second fund about two years ago now and have continued to basically fund a lot of the marketing technology and e-commerce tech out there. And so it's always been like, how do we take advantage of what we have and how do we build off this platform? While Hawk Media still has no outside investors, it's still independent. We have investors in the fund side, no investors in Hawk AI, but we're able to build out this ecosystem that all helps and builds off each other so that we can really own the marketing world and, you know, dominate the marketing world. And that's continues to be sort of the North Star list.
1: Yeah. Marketing world domination. I know that you and I are on the same page. We're also married before we are to our spouses. So we're on the same page. I think you skipped over a really big part between 14 and Let's call 14 the genesis. And I want you to talk about what 2014 looked like as an entrepreneur. And then I want you to talk about 2015 the let's call it 19, riding the wave, doing all the things, starting the fun, doing all this other stuff. But like, what was 14 like for you? And how did you find yourself able to continue to grow a business? Because I think a lot of people listening to this go, cool, Eric did this, Eric did that. What did you spend your 2014 doing? Like, not in glamorous terms. I want to talk about the, what did the grind look like? Because I think this gets lost a lot in these narratives, right? What did you do in 2014?
0: Yeah. And so it was a time like now I'm on a plane all the time. Back then I couldn't afford to be. So I (laughs) was at a random cocktail hour or event in LA pretty much seven nights a week, if not close to it. I took every phone call, I followed up with every contact every month, because I didn't have that many. So I was on constantly staying in touch with people. And I just had this system of like, I'd meet people, I'd stay in touch, I'd try to you know be top of mind and make sure they knew what I did. And I just every partner, every client, every event I could be at to get that one extra client, because up until three and a half years into Hawk, I was even three and a half years in I was 85% of the sales. So the beginning i mean we didn't hire a salesperson till i think a year in. i know we had someone for like a couple months that sold one client. but yeah great guy but i yeah i just i was thankfully freed up to just like go build the brand and that was it and i i was incessant about it but it was the good news like it was a grind and it was like scrappy and i was like you know again dan like i was up i was on my first call at 7 30 every morning and i was out until 10 PM and then to sleep and woke up again and did it again. And Saturdays and Sundays, my wife reminds me of this because we started dating a month after Hawk started. Like I was dead to the world Saturday and Sunday during the day. And then I'd go to another event at night. Like I needed to sleep till noon. But that was because I just go, 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 all week. But it worked. Like that's the interesting thing about building a business like this is when you see the fruits of your labor, it's really easy to keep going. When you grind, 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 but you see things building and growing and you're closing those deals and you're making money and you're winning and you feel that momentum, like it is really easy to keep going. I think that's something that people don't necessarily realize, like how much
1: more energy you can get. People want it, in my opinion, if I may take the opportunity to editorialize, they want that sooner, like that that whole, you know, there's some parable about digging for gold and you're only an inch away and all that stuff. Like, yeah. Again, you and I have the benefit of knowing each other. And even though you're my interviewee, so I'm driving this one, buddy. The truth is, like you did stuff all the time where I'd be like, Are you really gonna take this phone call? And you'd be like, I'm going to because it's worthless, but maybe there's something that comes on the back of it. And I was like, Whatever, man, take your time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was literally, and that's what was important to me was like I wanted every half hour of every day filled with another call because who knew? Like I yeah. I don't know, right. I figure it out. And like, and this goes back to the timing though. It was also a time where I knew every company needed what we did. That yeah. doesn't mean there weren't other options, but even today, every company needed what it did. The difference is then there were about 25,000 digital agencies in the U.S. in 2014. Now there's 88,000. So the yeah. market's definitely different, but and our business model is different, all these things. But at that time, yeah. I was like, everyone we're needs
1: really what we do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So yeah, that was, I mean, that was the first year. It was just heads down, grind. I'm going to hit a million dollars in our first year was the goal, and we hit 1.01 million.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but then okay. So we learned that you learned that in year one. You're the the star of this show. So you learned that, and then over the next few years, obviously, you built a successful service business on a recurring revenue model based on your previous experiences. And then I think you jumped ahead a couple chapters here. There was some substantive investments. There was some diversification of sort of interests, and then all of these things were entrepreneurially optimistic or uh, yeah. opportunistic, I guess is the way oh, I would describe yeah. it. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was
0: really, I mean, I would say year, you kind of mentioned it like year two to four was becoming a company. Like we ended year one with 17 people. We took them all to Vegas. It was a shit show. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I feel like that was the start of like, it's a company, not a startup. I mean, I don't, like, I never, I hated the word startup. I felt like startup was a word to use where it's like a business that doesn't make money so burns investor money instead. Like, I hate, I've never really been fond of being called a startup, but it was like, now it's time to have management in some way. We had 17 people about that point. We needed someone to manage some people. And like, we started to like, learn how to grow up a little bit. And, you know, you go through phases like that. Like every time you double, the culture really changes and the need for infrastructure changes and et cetera. And we doubled every year. So it was like, it was this crazy like right. ride of trying to figure out like what we didn't know. Like what was the year? I think it was like halfway through your, th- your third year was when we realized we needed HR and benefits and all that kind of stuff. Like, Oh, we can't just keep people as independent contractors anymore. And like how you figure that out. Like it was like all these parts of business that a lot of new entrepreneurs go through, but we didn't have the benefit of VCs coaching us or advisors or anything. We just went and figured it out. And I think that was a lot of the fun of it too. It was like, I don't know how this works. How is it supposed to work? Like, and, you know, I've said this earlier today on another podcast, actually. Like, it's funny because I remember us always looking at how other people did things and thinking they were all stupid. And then, you know, about, I'd say 75% <laughs> of the time, you realize that there's reasons they're doing things that way. And maybe yeah. we really needed to learn, but,
1: uh, You're big enough and then you go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I get you now. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And it's like, but honestly, I wouldn't change it because I think it's that, that cockiness that allowed us to do what we did because, like we were month to month, we had zero long-term contracts for many years, which every agency person I talked to said was nuts and would never work. And it was our way, or it was our foothold into the industry was allowing us to be the flexible one. And then it became table stakes for a lot of companies. And so it wasn't a selling point anymore. So we didn't need to do it anymore. But it's been interesting to watch, like there's, and this happens in a lot of industries, like not knowing anything about the industry actually can help you a lot. Only knowing from the customer side, because we had those brands, knowing what I hated, which was... I have never met you before, but you want me to get married before we date? Like, what are you talking about? So, you know, it was an interesting path to just trying to do things the way we thought they should be done. And it seemed to click.
1: Okay, perfect. By the way, so I want to be mindful of like time and at the same time. Okay, so there's this period, amazing, right place, right time, market opportunity, great leadership, great rank and file employees, did a lot of great stuff hit all the napkin sketch numbers, amazing. And then you get into this plateau period, right? So how have you identified or how have you made a point of identifying, here's how we built you know, the cabin, but here's how we're going to defend it. Here's the next thing. Here's the next thing. Here's the next thing. You talked about AI acquisition. You talked about a venture fund. You talked about all these things that have nothing to do with a marketing business. Where and when and why does that come in? And then how do you have the chutzpah to put resources behind it? Like, where does that come from? Well, so I guess the,
0: remand- if if the core, core
1: value, proper differentiation is like muddied. Then that's the time yeah. to maybe. Yeah.
0: And if, if, again, if like what you started with is no longer special, because that yeah. was really special when we started. It's not it special. So yeah. It's uh, you, you, the same way I said, when i go out and talk
1: about it, people's eyes would light up. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it's like okay. that's really good boots on the ground, right? If you're a founder or you're a seller or you're somebody in that position like if you're not getting that shiny glimmer in the eye, that that matters. Okay. Yeah. Last piece and then I'll let you go. One piece of advice you would give someone going for their dreams 16 25 45. What's the advice from the desk of Mr. Huberman?
0: Yeah, something I've really become aware of the past two years is there's only two reasons companies fail. Two. One, you get underwater on debt or investment that you can just never build a business that's worth anything to you. Like you take out a hundred million dollar loan or investment, your business is never going to be worth that, or you can't service the debt. Who you is your business to those investors or lenders? That's one, you get underwater. Number two, the leadership gives up. Because if you don't give up and you don't have debt, you can always contract. You can always grow and contract. And so what that means to me is if in survival and like Charlie Munger, I think says it in terms of like, just survive, just don't lose money. Like that's, that's how you win in this game. Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's partner for those that don't know. And so to me, like if anyone is going out to seek to build a business and be on the entrepreneurial side, it's, it really, this is one piece of the advice is just get the grit to stick with it. And don't get yourself into a position that you don't have control that you can get underwater and you're going to be golden because then it's just about outlasting. And you talk to any long-term entrepreneur and they're all going to say that same thing. It's almost a cliche at this point. Like you just got to get through the tough times because they're going to be tough times. So that's super important. The other piece after interviewing 100 different people and more to come soon, the number one line or number one reason I see people are successful is they just fucking do it. Like... It's not because they came from money. People love to tell themselves there's narratives. There's all these, there's such a emphasis on victim culture these days where it's like, oh, it's because they're rich is why. Like people loved, and my dad was super successful. I'm not shy about it. He also did nothing to help build Hawk Media. So like, I <laughs> love the guy. He gave me advice, but like he had, there's no, he didn't give me money for this or anything. Like, and you know, he exposed me to a lot, but now that I've interviewed all these people, it's like. There is nothing in line with like they came from a successful family or they had super supportive parents or there's people that are abused. There's people that came from nothing. Like look at, listen to Sophia Amorosa's podcast about her success with Nasty Gal if you want to talk about like, oh, yeah, like, no, it is not a thing. And so if you want to be successful, you got to be smart enough and hardworking enough. and Then you just got to do it. Like just go and swing the bat was what I, the advice I got. Like just go for it and keep going for it. And if you, you know, the whole idea of like when to give up, which is another question I got asked recently, like you'll know whether it's it, it, never give up because it's too hard. Give up because you think this is the wrong use of your time. That's when it's time to throw in the towel. When you're like, I could do something smarter or better right now, move on to something else. Never give up because it's hard because everything's hard. Life is hard. That's part of it. So, you know, really what I've learned out of all of this is like that is probably the crux of it is you just to be successful. you got to go for it. And like, yeah, I'd say that's the biggest takeaway. Excellent. Well, thank you, Eric, thank you.
1: for your entrepreneurial wisdom. We're all greater for it. So, yeah, thanks for listening to the Hawk Talk podcast. If you have any other questions for Eric, hit him up at e at And thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.